Welcome to Conversations with Event Leaders. I'm the host, Radian Huck, and this podcast is all about sitting down with event leaders and hearing their stories from their event planning adventures. Today, I talked to Abarna Salvaraja. Abarna is a Tamil Canadian fourth year student at the University of Ottawa. She has a ton of experience in leadership and a ton of experience with events. She just completed her term as president with the Model United Nations Association at U Ottawa. She has been a part of the organization for four years. And in this episode, we talk about topics like compassionate politics, exploring an organization's origin story, and representation at events. We also take a deep dive into how she organized successful recurring training session events for her organization. I found this conversation to be extremely insightful, so I'm excited to share this with you. Let's get into it. Abarna, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited for it. Um, so maybe we can start off by you introducing yourself. Tell us about you. What do you do? What are you interested in? What events have you planned in the past, etc., etc. Yeah, of course. My name is Abarna Salvaraja. I'm currently in my undergrad for political science and history over at the University of Ottawa. Uh, in terms of what we're going to be talking about today, I'll be talking about my term as both vice president delegate training for two years at Model United Nations Association at U Ottawa, and then one term as president, which ended in April of this year. Nice. Yeah. Congratulations. What was your favorite memory from the entire experience? My goodness, there's so many. Uh, I honestly think some of my favorite memories were mu- meeting so many new people at the training sessions that we're going to talk about in a bit. Okay. So. Nice. That sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, so why did you get involved with Mana? That's also yet another great question. Um, I remember the first time I heard about Mana was through Facebook. And so when I had gotten in contact with the people that were organizing the first like info session, I was extremely intimidated. Uh, one, because none of the people looked like me but I actually had a really good group of supportive friends that walked with me to the first like info session and um, just sat with me while I learned about MANA and learned about, you know, Model UN for anyone that doesn't know is pretty much a simulation of the United Nations that uh, university students, college students do at various levels. Um, and so hearing about this process, learning about how you develop as both a debater and an organizer was really interesting for me. And I thought it would be a space where I could grow for the rest of my university career. Do you feel, feel like you did? Definitely. My goodness. I have grown to levels I did not think I could. And I've also seen, I've also been privileged enough to see uh, so many young women and men around me grow as well. Um, which is something that I find is very valuable for a lot of student organizations is the fact that not only do you recognize how much you grow as a student, but you get to see, you get to work together as a community to help others who were in the same position as I was when I first entered Model UN start to become more comfortable in the whole, in my case at least, debating space. Nice, I like it. Uh, One of the aspects of being a part of a university or post-secondary level uh, Model UN organization is you get to travel all over the place to participate at these different conferences. What was that experience like for you? Honestly, terrifying at first. Um, I remember my first conference, we were only going to Kingston, which for anyone who isn't from here is literally a two hour drive. But I overpacked, I packed my suitcase to the brim because it was my first time going for a conference by myself from, anyways, I lived away from my parents. So it was the first time for me for everything. Um, But the process got easier and easier and easier because like you ended up learning that Um, external conferences were honestly there to help you get out of your comfort zone almost like literally physically out of your comfort zone and also put you in a space where you were able to not only like debate new and great topics in the simulated like UN atmosphere but you're also able to meet a bunch of new people from different universities experience like a university culture that is not native to you and also understand that your academic experience isn't only about you in this university bubble I mean, with the preface that like Model UN itself is a very like is, is, is a privileged stage to be at. Um, you don't just exist within your university bubble and that there are debaters that will teach you so much and manners that will teach you so much at various different external conferences. So I guess the short answer for what you asked was terrified, but you slowly learn how to become uh, better at traveling. 
Nice, I like it, I like it. I don't feel like my own personal experience is competing in all these different business case competitions. There are a lot of case competitions that happen at the UFT Mississauga, the school that I went to, uh, but a lot of case competitions that happen outside of there, especially ones that aren't just solely organized by a group of individuals from one specific school, they're extremely diverse with a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds coming in. Yeah. It's just so interesting having conversations with these people that you know, don't necessarily um, share the same experiences or are not from the same community as you are. Yeah. And it's so cool. So I want to ask you this. So um, at the beginning, you overpack, you're terrified. Yeah. At the end, what happened? Like, oh. how, how different were you? Honestly, um, nearing the end, I was the head of a couple of delegations that we sent. And I had some amazing team members that were working with me as well. So... I want to say realistically that magic that you feel going to external conferences kind of leaves because you become the organizer and all you're worried about is making sure that everyone is alive at the end of the weekend but honestly it felt like such a it was i was able to honestly measure my growth um meaning like those feelings of being terrified they kind of eroded away and i was able to see with my own eyes how much of a leader i had grown simply from leading these delegations to external conferences but like on the topic of diversity at these conferences that you run into i think it's important that we also emphasize the level of accessibility for these conferences and one of the biggest reasons that when i do talk about my tenure with you ottawa i don't necessarily mention external conferences is because you begin to realize how much the model un sphere is um not open to people who don't have the exact same privileges uh, and just the exact same privileges that you have. So each external conference, to be realistic, like cost a lot of money. So it wasn't just about the experience. It wasn't just about how these people organize the event. It was about how much we paid out of pocket to go to these conferences. So to me, like, yes, I can measure my own personal growth through these conferences, but as an association, as a representative of the association, our growth, I feel like was measured through the amount of member um, retention we had and the amount of people that were interested in coming out to whether it be our training sessions or our social events or our in-houses, which we'll talk about later. So that whole idea of accessibility is something that stuck with me. And even if my personal growth benefited from these external conferences, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a great way to measure the association's growth. Okay. Um, in the last episode of this, po this podcast, uh, we had Michelle, who was the president of DECA-U Ontario. Mm -hmm. And the way that DECA-U Ontario worked is that it was, part, it was a subsidiary of the larger DECA organization. Mm -hmm. you, so just a quick question for you. So, Mana, um, was that part of a larger organization? Because I, I know Model UN has a big brand. But are you, is the Mana at U Ottawa, the Mana at Carleton, Mana at UFT? There is one. I don't know if there is. There is one. <laughs> Are they like their own separate entities or do they work under, I guess, a bigger umbrella? That is so, such a good question. Interestingly enough, Model UN at UOttawa has existed since 1959. And during that time, there was actually something called, I think, I'm losing, I think it was uh, Société des Nations Unies. Anyways, it was a national United Nations society that existed on behalf of the United Nations Association of Canada that moderated all of the model UNs all across Canada. Um, but back in the 50s and 60s, it was much easier because there weren't that many universities, there weren't that many students to have to moderate, and a lot of their correspondence was done via letters. Now we don't necessarily have um, a large governing body that looks over all of these model UN associations. It's very much, um, not necessarily grassroots, but it's very much a student initiative at each university. Um, but I can guarantee you most universities that you go to uh, would have a model UN club. And a lot of times the way that you can recognize the Canadian circuit of model United Nations is by going to like the popular United Nations conferences, whether it be the one that's hosted by McGill, uh, Mechman, or the one hosted by UFT, which was Neyman. Um, that's where you start to see like, oh, you know, this is the UFT model UN group. This is the Ryerson model UN group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, one of the things you mentioned earlier is that it's important to recognize that um, accessibility concerns are real. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you know, 
I mean, I'm assuming that every organization strives to be as accessible as possible. When it comes to trying to figure out the logistics and operations in order to make that a reality, do you get, I want to understand with your support system um, as an organization, how does that work? Do you, maybe taking a step back, like, I don't know, for example, is there like a group community Facebook page with all the MANA executives oh, across yeah. Ontario, across oh. Canada, across the world. I know there's something in the works right now for sort of that model UN circuit. I haven't really heard much on it, but when I was serving my term, there wasn't. A lot of my support came from previous execs or the execs that existed within my space. Or shout out to my father, honestly, my father. But we never really had that sort of network of Model UN previous execs or current execs that would be able to, you know, talk about your your concerns with one another. I think we would have greatly benefited from that, uh, but it just wasn't something that was in place. Okay. Um, so if we're talking about a specific case example, like um, an individual from U Ottawa wanted to get involved with MANA, but perhaps financials were very tough. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know you guys had certain systems in place uh, to help them help individuals that require a little bit of assistance is that things that you guys you as a student leader had to figure out yeah on your own yeah um so we had a financial aid program that started this year because what how we originally treated our conferences were subsidies for each individual conference uh meaning that for you would pay a certain delegate fee for the external conference and money would be subsidized from that delegate fee for everyone but then having conversations with certain members i realized that you know a certain member that is that has the support of their family for let's say their tuition or their financial um, management can or or have means for their own um, revenue um, can maybe afford to pay the full price for the conference whereas someone else couldn't and by the way, just to preface all this, none of the fees were coming to the association itself. It was fees that the conference was asking of us. Um, so upon learning that, I really wanted to be able, and our association really wanted to be able to give the people in financial need uh, adequate funding. And so trying to create a financial financial aid program was probably like one of the most difficult tasks I've had to figure out this past year, along with the help of my amazing executive. And it was a hard balance to understand what type of questions as a student association you can ask to people who want financial aid and what kind of questions you couldn't and how to evaluate all of that. Mind you, I go to the University of Ottawa. I'm not sure if anyone listening to your podcast keeps up with University of Ottawa drama, but we recently lost our student union and voted in a new student union. Uh, So with that, like, with that, with that situation going on, it was nearly impossible to find support to help create these sort of programs. So it was a lot of relying on my wonderful executive and uh, uh, honestly, like trying to figure it out ourselves. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just thinking, cause like, what, like trying to create some sort of financial aid system sounds like such a daunting task. How did you guys go about doing it? Well, it was... Okay, so I started at Model UN three years ago, and we've been subsidizing since I first... thought three years ago, four years ago. We've been subsidizing since I first entered Model UN. It worked. We brought in so many delegates, but what I recognized being VP training first year and second year was that the delegates who got subsidies for conferences we're not always delegates who wanted to go to the conference. Conference, And I realized this once when I was in Montreal and we were at McGill for uh, one of the Model UN conferences. This is the biggest Model UN conference hosted by Canada. And they had their closing ceremonies. So to, to our association, it's a really huge deal that you have people um, and your delegation sitting together near, at the end of closing ceremonies to know that you came in as a unit and you're leaving as a unit, you know, team building. And when I went to go get a few of our delegates to go to the closing ceremonies, 
they they declined they said they didn't want to come and they said they wanted to go shopping in montreal which to me as vp training was a huge defeat it was a huge defeat so many people i mean they also postponed the time of the closing ceremony so people couldn't make it because of logistics but a lot of people opted not to come and it was i think one of my biggest failures i've ever felt the entire past three years because i realized that People were not coming to Model UN for the academic experience. People were coming to see the city. And I mean, if you, sorry, if you wanted to see the city, you could have paid the $20 that it takes to Greyhound from here to Montreal. And so after that, I began to realize how important financial aid is because I could count how many students would have benefited from taking this individual, like these particular individuals that said they didn't want to come to the closing ceremonies, how many other members that couldn't necessarily afford to go to conference, how they could have benefited and how eager they would have been to, to be part of the final delegation at closing ceremonies. So that one moment kind of spurred this whole discussion I had with like incoming executive, leaving executive, so many people about creating the financial aid pro program. And when we started brainstorming for it, there's a lot of things that went on behind the scenes that were very tough decisions to make, like how much money can be allocated, how much of this person's delegation fund. But honestly, I think starting the financial aid program was one of our biggest successes because it sent so many delegates to conferences that, um, you know, we're proud to have sent them to those conferences. Mm. Nice, Ali. Okay. Um, you know, we, you and I have been conversating for a while, uh, <laughs> uh, but like we've been talking especially this past year while you were the president of OUMANA, um, and one of the things I've come to realize is that uh, your team is very, in my opinion, very empathetic, and I think the financial, like the program that you have there is a great example of that. Um, so let's, let's move on to leadership, right? Because uh, we have a lot of discussions about this, and I think um, you're an individual that I highly respect, uh, and I, I, I really, the more I learn about how you lead your team, the more impressed I get, which is pretty cool. So let me, so maybe start off by telling us first of all, how big is your team? So, oh goodness, I have to count. Uh, my first number was 10. I think it's 11, including me. Yeah, 11 including me. Okay. Um, what have you learned through the entire process of leading this team? Mm. Oh. I think we had a discussion about this actually after the gala. Um, and one of the biggest things I learned, one of the biggest things that I'm, I'm happy to have learned from this team was the power of a leadership of compassion and politics of compassion. Um, and the importance in learning that the individuals that you work on a team with are working towards a common purpose with you. And no matter which way they get to that common purpose, you need to be able to support them. Uh, I was doing a little bit of research on comp compassionate politics before this, and the literal definition of compassion is to suffer together, which I thought was pretty hilarious. Uh, but. The whole idea of embodying a politics of, of empathy is one that comes from understanding that true power can only come from giving, giving other people the chance to feel welcome and warm. And so a lot of times when I had to make difficult dis decisions as a leader this past year, I didn't approach it as a representative of Uomana, I approached it as Abby, as myself, as someone who could see themselves in the other person's shoe and would want for someone in my shoes to act around them. So if I had to have a difficult dis discussion, it would always be face to face. It would always be with an understanding of what that other individual was going through. And even if I needed to talk about consequences, it would always be from a a area of understanding from a foundation of, of acknowledgement of the other person's experience experiences so that were some principles that I thought were extremely important in leading a team um, 
But honestly, this isn't just a one person effort. My team taught me this because I had such a wide variety of personalities on my team. It was amazing. Uh, our exec meetings would be quite lively, but learning how to bring that all into a common vision and a common goal, which a lot of what this past year was, I had an exec that would constantly tell me, he's like, you know, we're setting the foundation for next year. We're setting the foundation. And I really liked that. I liked that 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 statement as, as a vision statement almost, because yeah, as working as a team that was constantly aware of what our fellow peer was going through, we were setting a foundation for a, a better, more, more, welcoming exec therefore a better more welcoming association that would create events that would make people feel uh, like they belonged in model un it was something that i never really felt until maybe my third year with model un and so it's something that's very dear to my heart i like it so going to the position uh, during your fourth year so was that the mindset that you really had like okay let's try to foster this environment that that would help everyone succeed definitely definitely and it's a lot of lessons that i got not only from you know having discussions with my great friends like yourself uh, but also from being the trainer for the past two years because i really prioritized training sessions over pretty much any other event while i was vp training because I recognized how important it was that these people come together, sit at the same table with the execs and like learn about Model UN and practice Model UN. And then when I began to realize that, you know, group training doesn't really work for people and that we needed to do individual training, I was like so, so, so privileged to hear about all of these different stories of like these girls and boys who came to Model UN because they heard about it through a friend or they came because they wanted to work on their like speaking skills or they came because they're Francophone and they're, 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 they wanted to work on their English skills or they're Francophone and they wanted to speak on their French speaking skills, which Uomana has so many opportunities opportunities for Francophones to come and debate. It was helping people break out of their shells, uh, which I did not do on my own, but helping people to do that was a eye-opener for me. And I was able to recognize that the only way to make like large groups of people feel like they're welcome is by being in a leadership position and constantly reminding people that their emotions, their experiences, their, their memories and their stories are all valid and we're here to hear them and we're also here to help you grow from them. Which is why I'm always here to uh, listen to any of your um, nightmare stories from conference. I have plenty too. <laughs> <laughs> sure, that in common. Nice. Uh, I remember, so about a year and a little bit ago, uh, we were sitting in a cafe and we were talking about this is before you became, well, I think you actually just got the position Collected, and you were yeah. working on laying down the necessary organizational foundation to, you know, proceed with the organization. Uh, but one of the, one of the projects you embarked on was trying to archive, oh, oh well, trying to, um, is that the appropriate term to use, archive? Yeah. Or you, like, you went into the archives and tried For to find the much. history of Oyumana. Why? Why? Because it was actually something that a former former Carlton exec actually told me when we were talking together, um, and he was he said it like like totally off, uh, just some random like note. He said it like casually, uh, where he was like, "Oh, you know, um, one of my biggest achievements was finding out like the origins of Carlton UN." And I was, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, you know. Why does an origin story matter for an association, for a student association? And at that time, it was very... The state of student politics in Uottawa, at Uottawa, was a little precarious. And understanding how you fit in the history of student politics was absolutely... Uh, it, was, it was unsettling. Let's say it's unsettling. And so, to me, I'm like I mentioned earlier, in poli-sci and history. So I enjoy sticking my nose in books for pretty much the entire day. 
But walking into the archive center, I spoke with a really nice girl and she helped me find uh, old records that they had saved of Model UN from like the 50s and the 60s. It was incredible because you saw what student motivation, student politics, uh, revolutions looked like, looked like at that time. She pulled out these books that were minutes from our uh, student union from that time and you looked at what accountability looked like at that time. You understood that, you know, if they had $2,000 to spend, which was a lot of money back then, they account they took account of every single dollar until the very cent. So making sure that we had an archive of Model UN wasn't only just to ensure the fact that we would understand the history of our association, it was also to ensure the fact that we would understand the importance of valuing um, budgeting, of valuing uh, like strict rules when it comes to money and also having like a set level of principles. I, I was, I, it was so incredible. I didn't expect to find it, but I found a lot of notes that the president from the 1990s had written to incoming presidents uh, for Model UN. And it was pretty much like this 10 step guideline. Uh, like one of the steps being like, always be punctual because you wanna be, um, you want for the association to know that you are taking your role seriously. Um, but. Another one, like one of the last points was also like to enjoy the experience because you're only going to be here for a limited time and these memories are something you're going to cherish for the rest of your life. So to find almost like gems like that and to also find like examples of when previous executives had enforced these principles, it was sort of this holistic approach to how I wanted to govern for the year to come. And uh yeah, we accumulated that and put it into our website, which uh, I tend to plug a lot, mana.ca, but... We're <laughs> <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> no, um, but it's it's up there, and it, it definitely meant a lot to myself and the association. Man, that's so cool. That's so cool. <laughs> Thank Going, you. Basically time traveling, really, more than anything. Like time traveling and seeing how things ran in the past. So just to like riff off of um, that president from the 1990s that had that that posted their ten principles. I want to put you on you on the spot right now. Not ten. Ten is like kind of insane right now. But how about like three principles that or three principles that you you would recommend future generations of all you all you mana you mana you mana sorry um, follow to ensure a great experience. Ooh. Mm. My first principle would be understand the value of a member's experiences, which means that a lot of times in Model UN circuits, you see a certain type of experience being um, forced onto a member. Whether they go to a big conference and it's the pub night and the members are supposed to come out, whether it be like uh, committee session where you're forcing like new time members to speak I don't think that equation is what leads to like valuable experience by understanding and prioritizing individual members experiences you'll be able to curate events not only like external delegations but also internal events like in-houses like training sessions that will be able to give them an opportunity to find themselves in MUN. That's my first principle. Second principle is to always remain diligent with your executive. And so when you lead a team, make sure that you're leading the team with a purpose and make sure that they all understand and embody that purpose. Whether it be in their own individual way, that's fine, but by letting them understand that purpose, you also give a basis to, be, to hold them accountable. If they don't meet up to their 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 tasks or their uh, their vision for the year during their exit interview, you could be like, "Hey, like, what went wrong? What could we? What can you work on for future years? Um, and how do you think you contributed to the purpose that we set out in the beginning?" And my third tip is probably going to be a basic tip that everyone would else would give, but enjoy your time there, because if you don't learn to stand back and look at the experience and really take it in for what it is, then it's gonna pass by in such in, in a snap. And I think those are some of the moments that I'm gonna cherish forever. It's when I was at 
these in-houses or these training sessions and I was able to step back for a second and be like oh my goodness we did it like we brought all of these people together and you know they're debating anything from like uh, foreign intervention in certain wars to humanitarian crisis to who knows what fantastical topic you guys created opportunities yeah and we got help in creating opportunities and saw growth in our members so I love that. I love that. So, okay. So out of curiosity, I, I want to know as an outsider looking into the University of Ottawa Model UN Association, I mean, obviously Ottawa is the capital city of the country. Mm -hmm. You guys literally have Ottawa in your name, your school's name. Do you feel any sort of pressure to do great work as you will want to? Um, Pressure. So we are fortunate to share the Model UN circuit at Ottawa with Carlton as well, who has an excellent team. And in the beginning, there was some pressure to meet up to the standards of whether it be Carlton's team or the name U Ottawa. Um, and everyone feels that pressure in different, different ways. But at the end of the day, the best way to make sure that you know you know you reap those awards and that you're able to go and like truly debate and feel like you're going to win is if you feel comfortable enough to do that so yeah i felt the pressure but with the pressure came a level of determination that was unmatched because i was like listen and you know what else put pressure on me like going through the archives man these people <laughs> be going to like really big conferences back in the day and goodness it was it was unimaginable so there was a lot of pressure points but it was in the way that you kind of like digested that pressure and was like listen we need to transform this into hard work and we need to make sure that people have people know that there's a legacy to live up to yeah nice let's talk about conflict re resolution um because of course with any organization trying to do great work conflicts will arise mm -hmm. Let me start by asking you this question. What do you think, what role do you think, from your perspective, what role do you think you were, you should play when there's a conflict between, let's say, executive members as the president? It's interesting you mentioned that because a lot of our constitutional meetings this past year, at least in the first semester, was trying to hammer out that question. It was trying to understand, okay, if there's conflicts between executives, a com conflict between an exec and a member, if there's conflict between members, who are they held accountable to? And one of the most, one of the most weirdest things that I realized when I came into the executive was that there was no one above me, and not in a, not in a clout kind of way. It was more of a, there is no one that could hold like the rest of the executive accountable that was above me or even hold me accountable. So it's about creating this community guideline that everyone holds everyone else accountable. So I made sure that myself, along with another trusted executive, would be able to be the ones that would be the conflict, conflict mitigators, essentially. Um, and if people didn't feel comfortable bringing up whatever conflict they had in between themselves to us, they would be able to choose who the conflict mitigators were. And by just letting me know and by, by going through the due process that was set in our constitution, we'd be able to have that conflict um, addressed within the executive or if it was between members uh, in, in a public space like that. Uh, we also understood that there were a lot of things to consider in conflict mitigation and that both sides stories needed to be heard and they needed to express their um, they need to express both of their opinions and arguments to each other but a third party would need to be pre present in that environment so that you'd be able to help sort out these conflicts um, it was a really weird system to hammer out gotta say but I feel like it was one of the best choices that we could have made at that time so that it wouldn't be one person telling everyone how to um, solve the conflict in between themselves. You could create a community that holds each and every other person accountable and then we would have our general meetings where the members would hold us accountable. So yeah. Do you feel the system worked? Um, to a certain extent it did, but I do also have to emphasize that as a student organization, we did not get 
the resources that we needed. We did not get proper um, sexual abuse training or we didn't get any leadership training. We didn't get any financial management training. We didn't get any like gender identity training. There's so much, so much that is needed to understand how to better uh, mitigate conflicts in between individuals, especially students. And we did not get any of those resources, whether it be on behalf of our university or stuff that was going on with our student union. I hope that it's prioritized for future years, um, but I feel like we were able to do as much as we could with the research that we're given, and there were so many areas of improvement. So uh, we were seeking um, opinions and ways in which we can improve throughout the year, and I think that was one of the best things we could have done with the circumstances. Mm -hmm. Nice, I like it. Uh, you know, so I went to your gala at the end of the year, and it was such a, it was, first of all, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I was the most successful gala. Thank you. Uh, but one of the things I, I really noticed is that every single individual in the room, uh, I, don't, I don't remember the exact expression, but basically they really, really respected you. Where do you think that level of respect stems from? I, I'm, I'm really grateful um, to them for that respect. I, this is a hard question. I really look up to my father. He has been one of my biggest role models um, for my entire life. And one of the biggest things my father has taught me about leadership was that your actions speak louder than your words. And to me, going into this year as president, understanding that my actions, that my relationship with every single member um, is what I was going to take out of this year and how I was going to prove that I deserve to be in this position and that I could be, um, that I could deliver for them as a president was of utmost importance. Can I be candid with you? Yeah. Being a brown woman, a brown woman who dresses in an unconventional manner, who can, you know, get Toronto real quick, and who is as proud of her Tamil heritage as, as I am, it's difficult to be taken seriously in a space like Model UN that is very, um, Eurocentric, that is very white male centric. So carving a space out for yourself and then continuing to carve that space out for whether it be uh, all of our members, women of color, marginalized communities, it's a team effort. And I would hope that the respect that these members have for me was a product of the fact that they understood that they were always part of this team and that myself and the rest of my executive valued the contributions that they brought to our association and wished them so much growth and so much wellness. And I hoped that they could take those lessons and carry it with them for the rest of their lives. I don't really know if that answers your question, but that's what comes to my mind. Oh, for sure it did. Um, so, so, that's a, that's, so that's very interesting. I want to hear your thoughts on so one of the things you mentioned that is that mana 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 I keep getting it mixed up is it mana or mana 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 um, so mana um, is very white male centric at the moment and I think that there and there is a lack of diversity lack of representation lack of representation okay. How do you change that? I think it's it's all in it's all in understanding that by prioritizing your growth as a marginalized delegate or as a marginalized member of the community or prioritizing your growth as a woman, as a woman of color, as any identity that does not particularly identify with the with the the current the, the current image of Model UN 
And by making yourself known in committee, by making sure that you know you raise your placard, you speak, you deliver speeches that you are proud of, and you represent your country to the fullest extent that you possibly can, you'll be making one step forward in breaking that social stigma. And for individuals that are in Model UN that are of the of the the white um, cisgendered male community that that is overrepresented model UN you can be an excellent ally to your underrepresented um, to underrepresented communities by creating spaces for them by making sure that you know your voice doesn't overpower theirs and I always think that you know I'm I'm always learning and so is everyone who's a student of any academia or any experience whatsoever you are always learning so know when you make mistakes apologize when you make mistakes, learn and move on from those mistakes and make sure that you don't repeat them again. It's all about, it's all about this sense of, of confidence in who you are and confidence in what you can deliver and delivering it to your, your fullest extent. Hmm. So, do you When we talk about how Mana looks like right now, is it is it is it much di- so? I mean, you went through the archives and you've seen what it was like in the past. Is it much different? Do you think progress has been made on that front of achieving a greater sense of representation? Definitely, progress has has taken place. I mean, I think our first conference we ever went to as an association, like according to the archives, um, we were defending colonization. We were defending, like we were talking about, uh, what was it, savage folk and how colonizers had come to, to save them. And we inherently believed in these principles, we meaning the association back in the 50s. And that sort of rhetoric that's not well not that it's rhetoric no yeah it's rhetoric that sort of rhetoric and that sort of of argumentation isn't necessarily accepted today because we've evolved as the world has evolved um within the model un sphere we talk about a lot of difficult a lot of difficult uh topics i mean i was fortunate enough to sit on a panel uh the office of the special advisor to the secretary general on gender issues osaji for short um as a as a individual as a special envoy to the secretary general to talk about their issues such as like female genital mutilation to talk about lgbt uh, lgbtqi2s representation in the workforce to talk about just gender equality as a whole these were topics that we discussed in a small committee at a conference which was mind-blowing to me because if your viewers aren't really familiar with model un it was a lot of like countries representing their foreign policy or you know you would do like live action role play where you were characters and it was like this whole fantastical realm it was never really like we never really discussed gender equality in one like committee session but i saw that type of values i saw the direct correlation between like the the specific committee that i described was at an external conference and i saw the experiences from that external conference bleed into like UO Mana, and we had we had some excellent VP training trainers this past year that decided like mid year they wanted to host a SOCHIM, which was a social, oh geez, I'm gonna butcher this, social and humanitarian, yeah, social and humanitarian committee at UOttawa where we discussed gender issues, where we discussed like humanitarian ventures, where we discussed anything like outside of the whole like you know let's go declare war on this country let's go nuke this other country sort of like uh, mun realm yeah and i'm not too sure if that makes too much sense but essentially i saw the the lessons that we learned from external conferences bleed into our own association so you see these progressive values starting to change and you also start seeing like to be frank with you i started seeing so many girls that look like me which was mind-blowing not just in model un like you know um, but it was outside of Model UN, just like seeing all these girls at UFT, seeing all these brown girls over at like uh, at Ryerson. It was, it was such a, a humbling experience. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, 
I, I think that's important, right? Like mm-hmm. representation is so, 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 so important um, because beyond anything else, it's been, like, I, like drawing just even from my own personal experiences of these individuals that I really respect and really look up to and sort of, although it's, it may not be like a two-way street, but like I see them as like a mentor. A lot of them, I, like I can relate. I can relate to their upbringing i can relate to the environments the cultures that they were um they were they were a part of yep and i think that ability to relate to them really helps and seeing that they have succeeded and they've done some really cool shit provides me with a sense of confidence knowing that these people grew up like me they've done some cool shit i can do the same Yep. So I think that's so important. You you left Mona. I mean you your term ended not. I've retired. Yeah, <laughs> term ended. Um what are you, how do you feel? Oh I Wow, this is literally gonna be the third time I bring up my father, but he, he was convinced I was going to have a difficult time leaving and I was telling him, I'm like, no, like I get to relax. You know, what was it? One of my members was like, it's like Barack Obama when he left the presidency and went to like one of those random islands in the middle of nowhere and like vacationed with that British millionaire. I don't feel like that whatsoever. I left and my father was right. I was very... It was a hard transition. I'm still in the period of transition, like trying to give back physical materials and all of that. But understanding that this association wasn't going to be a part of my life was very difficult. But what wasn't difficult was like the whole control aspect of it. As a president, you have control over certain things, whether it be like team meetings, you know, pretty much the path of the association. And I have a lot of hope for our incoming executive and I see a lot of like passion and growth inside of them to lead Model UN down a path that they see fit. I don't feel that sort of that sort of tension over what they're going to do with the association or what they're not going to do with the association anymore because it's not my it's not my place to to dictate it. And I think that's what's important for a lot of leaders in our society to recognize is that when their term is over their term is over and they should hand the baton to the next set of like future leaders and they should be able to determine um, what path they want to take the association on and like personally like I'm not that old even though I'm coming off as very old I'm not that old and to be able to have a transition where I could still see myself growing as a leader outside of Model UN was was very important to me because my life for a really long time has been defined by Model UN. And I wanted to be able to understand how to grow as a leader in spaces that extended beyond um, Model UN, essentially. And I'm able to do that. I'm able to do that with the help of my family. I'm able to do that with the help of my friends that stuck around after I retired from Model UN. And I'm able to do that because um, I am privileged enough to be part of communities that are actively seeking, you know, empowered young individuals to, you know, do events and uh, to, to, to bring other communities together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Uh, so I bet there are probably viewer listeners to this uh, podcast that are going to be going into position of leadership. One of the things you mentioned was um, your, you know, when your term is when your term is over, it's over. Pass on the baton and just, you know, let them do their thing. What steps can you? What what's what advice would you have for anyone who's going to a position of leadership where they have a set term, in terms of what you could be doing, um, throughout the process to make that process a little bit that process of handing over the baton um, a little that, easier, like better. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're good. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Would this be the person that was receiving like the position or entering the position or leaving the position? Leaving. Leaving the position. Um. Transition reports, transition reports, transition reports. My goodness, are they helpful? I I think I've spent more time on my transition reports than some of my school assignments. But 
It's so important that you keep track of what you accomplished throughout the year and how it all began. Like the various resources I use that work, the various resources I've used that don't work, the ways in which I interacted with members that did work, the ways that didn't work, and really using that report to reflect on your past year, but also offer tips, tricks, and advantages for the incoming exec. I'd also highly suggest exit interviews with your team before you leave any leadership position because it also, like one, it helps you reflect on how you were as a leader, but two, it helps you give better advice to the incoming leader on how to treat their executive and how to better like create team meetings. So I'll leave it there. Short response, transition reports. Transition reports. I know we like we had a conversation earlier about the importance of exit interviews as well. Yeah. Um, one of um, one of the things we we're talking about was meetings. You know. So, what advice do you have for conducting good, effective meetings? Well, I had an exec member um, this past year in an exit interview tell me that my meetings were too long, and trust me, I got very offended first. But then I also put my feelings away, and I was like, you know, you're kind of right because to me, I would curate this agenda for exec meetings, and under I I would put down sections for each exec, but under those sections, I would put subsections over what I wanted them to talk about which I thought was, which I know is a great idea because then you get to control what they can talk about. And even if you add a miscellaneous section, you can just time it. But at a certain point, I started writing so much information down because I wanted to know what everyone was working on at all times. It's not, that's not a good way to, that's not a good way to handle team meetings. And I was alerted to that fact actually much earlier on in my, while I was entering the winter semester and I became a little bit smarter about meetings I started timing them and timing how much how long everyone could speak uh, and understanding how we are able to function as a team usually means keeping the team meetings as short as possible having like 40 to 50 minute team meetings is actually really helpful for context my team meetings would run like an hour an hour and a half Damn. <laughs> Goodness, it wasn't that bad. I brought snacks sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> oh goodness. But it was it was important that we kept it short. And it, it was all in understanding how you could better use the agenda that you gave to your team before um, to keep the, the, the time short at least for for the teams. Mm-hmm. Team meetings. Nice, interesting. Okay, I'll be happy to bar now. Uh, I want to move on to the next part of this podcast where we talk about specific events and how you went about bringing these events to life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of one of the events, I guess, continual events, events that you held regularly uh, that you mentioned earlier were your training sessions. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the training sessions. So I was voted in as VP training when I was in second year and then I was voted in as VP training when I was in third year. Let me tell you, my training sessions second year were a colossal earthquake, not in the good way. Mm. And understanding how to train delegates when I was in second year and still learning how Model UN worked was so difficult. I still had one-on-one sessions. I still had training sessions before conferences, but it did not have a set schedule. So one of the things I prioritized going into my third year was resources, schedules, location being consistent so four things resources meant that i needed to have a delegate guide prepared for delegates but i was going in as training so even if they didn't have access to actual like uh materials for model un they'd have this delegate guide that they can refer back to for like key terms they can refer to it for procedure they can refer to it for for random questions like about dress code and all of that stuff um and then in terms of like consistency it was important that we had access to like not access but we had an opportunity to make this like a reoccurring pattern you know we would have training sessions twice a week every single week for the entire year 
and they would be held at the same time on two different days. So if you couldn't make the Tuesday session, you come out to the Thursday session. Um, and they were both like the same topic. Location was important, having it accessible, obviously. So student, like we did it in our um, one of our student buildings and we would book it through like, you know, our, the student systems. Uh, but also having like bigger training sessions, especially at the beginning of the year when we'd get our most like member member uh, numbers was important. So we'd have to book out like classrooms and have access to resources there and, you know, sometimes provide food to get people to come out. Um, so it's a it's a very real, a real experience with the student life. And yeah, just just being consistent with the training session was something that we really prioritized. I remember um, I developed this sort of, it was like a, an org chart of how Model UN works so that people could understand, you know, like what a moderated caucus was, what an unmoderated caucus was. And every single training session, when I was in third year at least, I'd go up on that chalkboard and draw out this org chart. And I'd be like, we're gonna learn terminology today, kids. But that was important because it sort of like created a set of principles for them that they would follow throughout throughout the rest of the year. Uh-huh. Interesting. Uh, what you, so what do you think worked in terms of creating these effective training sessions? What worked? Um, honestly, like resources worked. The fact that the fact that we had execs that came into the training session and made everyone feel at ease worked. But beyond that, practice. My goodness, we needed to have mock trials. We needed to have mock like debate sessions. We need to get people out of their comfort zone. I'm not sure if you've ever experienced trying to get someone to speak up when they do not want to speak up. It is the hardest to convince someone to speak. But once you do, it's like, oh my god, it's like it's like witnessing like a bird come out of its like um, egg losing all my words today but it's like a bird come out of its egg you see them like really step into their wings and be able to actually participate rather than listening to you lecture so that was a priority and you know there's like small ways you can get people to talk like bringing in snacks for people they automatically become friends with uh, like random people they didn't know before because you know they're passing around plates or they're like talking about the food um starting every training session being like oh hey what did you guys hear in the news let's talk about it that gets people talking because people always have an opinion on the news um small small tricks that i slowly developed over the year really helped me uh, create better training sessions and actually have them work. Okay. So one of the things you emphasized was practice. So I want to, I'm curious, like, how early in advance do you start preparing for a training session? <laughs> I, I am a student and I am a crazy procrastinator. So when I was in when I was VP training for my third year in the fall semester, I was in co-op, so I was working. I remember I would take my lunches at work the day of the training session and just get all my materials together. However, however, it's not like I was developing the training program that hour, like during my lunch hour at work. I had developed my training program in the summer before my term had started as VP training. That was pretty much all I was doing. I was developing like uh, adequate steps to have people trained like i was i was setting goals for myself like members needed to understand terminology and procedure by this date members needed to be able to participate in mock trials by this date um conferences had like certain conferences had three tier training sessions other conferences had training sessions like the day before or a week before I set all of those principles and guidelines and a program the summer before. I spent four months curating this program. So assembling materials, yeah, they, it, it happened the, the day of the training session. However, the actual like criteria and the actual like knowledge, I taught myself during that summer and I, I, I retaught myself during that summer and I created this program. Mm-hmm. Nice, so it's a pretty long endeavor. Definitely worth it, though. I can imagine. So worth it. So, what what do you from from your experience and what you've learned throughout the entire process? What do you think is the in your specific situation with uh, UOMANA? What do you think is the best medium to help educate or slash train? Medium delegates? like online medium. Um, 
I guess more so like conveying information. One of the things you mentioned was that you would go on the whiteboard and draw out. Chalkboard. Uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> forgot this is the University of Ottawa. <laughs> oh goodness. <laughs> um, yeah, so you go on the chalkboard and use that to help, uh, you know, train your delegates. Mm-hmm. Did you use that throughout the entire year? Oh, that's or? a good question. Um, medium, I would say face-to-face interaction. Like, there's nothing better than face-to-face interaction. Whether it be, like, I would, we, we would do these, like, exercises where people would need to, like, draft up an opening speech or draft up, like, the first minute of a moderate caucus for a random topic. I would bring out, like, I think one, once I brought out, like, newspaper articles on, like, Kim Jong-un and something he had done in North Korea. This was two years ago. He's done a lot. Um... But it was something surrounding him, and I, I, I gave it to the, to, the, to the training room, and I was like, okay, you're America, and you need to talk about this situation that's happening right now. And I gave them all like individual copies, and I was like, come up with a two-minute opening speech. Write it down, and then deliver it to everyone. And then, while they were writing it down, going to members and being like, hey, like, do you have any questions? Do you want to talk about it? Do you want to make corrections? That was effective. That was way more effective than, you know, me and my chalkboard um, (laughs) ranting to them for like an hour straight because I was able to actually be like, oh, no, this is how you would introduce yourself. This is how you would talk about this specific situation. This is what you would recommend. Mm -hmm. And that helps them remember things much better than than most. Nice. Those one-on-one interactions. Mm -hmm. I like it. I like it. And apart from providing snacks whenever applicable, what else do you do to create a really good comforting environment and apart from just one-on-one interactions is there anything else that you consciously took an effort towards um, trying to help improve the environment a lot of really really kind people walked through the through through my training doors so i was really happy to share in their personal experiences and stories uh so definitely like becoming friends with a lot of people that would constantly come to training sessions was one big thing but also what I did nearing the end of the semester was we just abandoned the whole like training session format and people would just come in and I would have a news story ready and I'd be like, okay guys, this is what's happening in the world. Let's just talk about it. Like, what are our opinions? Let's not, we're not representing a country anymore. We're not representing a character anymore. What are our actual opinions? And once we talked about the Rohingya refugee crisis and it was like humbling to be able to understand what people's political opinions were, not just political, but also emotional opinions. And so creating that sort of like vulnerable space where people feel accepted for what they believe in and they don't just have to always pretend that they're espousing some foreign policy. Starting those difficult discussions with people and continuing them is something that helped create that sort of friendly environment. So I know I give a lot of, uh, a lot of due respect to snacks, but there's a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was about f- creating these friendships. Mm-hmm. Was that something was that sense of comfort something that you guys had to earn over the year? For like, you know, your last training session versus your first training session? Yeah. No, no one, like, no one's going to feel like anywhere near comfortable walking into an environment that they have like zero idea what's going to go on or zero idea who the person sitting beside them is. No one's going to feel comfortable. So it's something that you have to earn from your members. And it's also something that I found that a lot of us exec prioritized in terms of like making sure that we create events especially social events where the execs would prioritize speaking with individual members outside of an academic realm mm-hmm. definitely i think that's completely different it's an opportunity to experience things a little bit differently in a social environment versus an academic one it's really interesting How, like who helped you with the training sessions so I had, a uh, no, no, I had an assistant VP training in my second year. It was me alone in my first year and I had assistant VP training and she was just absolutely amazing in writing up like background guides and formulating these amazing in-houses where our delegates could speak up. So we had a lot of help. It was a team effort. Mm-hmm. Nice. Cool. Okay. So I want to ask you one more question and then I'm going to open up the floor for anything that you want to lift beers with. And this question is, requires you to do a little bit of reflecting. If you... Barna, taking what you know today, could go back and apply the knowledge 
coming into the position of an individual that is leading all of these training sessions, what are three things you would do differently? Yeah. If I wasn't, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Like as president, if I were to give myself advice as a trainer, what would I say? Not necessarily as president, mm -hmm. but just you as a partner. Yeah. Oh, myself. Hmm. Always. As a Barna? Okay. Always be kind to everyone. Um, make sure that you speak louder. Speak louder. Just have a loud voice. And my third one would be take up space. Yeah. As a Barna to the trainer. That's what I would say. Can you elaborate on the last one? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, that's uh, so interesting. Take up space. I remember... My first year as training, I would be so nervous to speak up because I didn't think I knew what I knew. Um, I didn't think that I had enough, enough knowledge to be in the position that I was. I was doubting myself a lot. And so the reason I'd say take up space is because I deserve to, be, I deserve to be there. I was voted in and I deserve to, to, to train people. I deserve to, you know, be a leader in that environment in that executive and so you shouldn't be afraid of taking up space at all uh, yeah and i think that's that's an that's advice i'd give to a lot of women that i know a lot of women that are interested in going to politics a lot of women that are interested in going to leadership fields in their own respective study take up space nice. you know. i like it uh so before we wrap this up is there any last words you want to leave the viewers with I think it's important that we understand how much work a student leader puts into an association and as a female who experienced a whole lot of things these past three years, as a Tamil woman who came to this position with, uh, with who's fortunate enough to have the psychological support and the emotional support that she did, I still found myself in very, very dark places while I was president, in very dark places while I was trainer as well. And I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by people who helped me, but not all of us are. And so it's important as a student leader, no matter what capacity you're at, that you take time to reflect and focus on your mental health. And I know that people say that and it's hard to discern how that applies to you. But talking about your feelings, talking about pressures, talking about ways in which um, you're feeling throughout the year with your fellow executive, with your friends, with your family, if you so feel comfortable, is so important so that you don't get lost into this dark place that solely consists of you and your responsibilities. That's why to student leaders who want to create a welcoming open space in their association, I highly recommend finding avenues to take care of yourself and then finding the energy within you to create that space for others. Because it's only from within you can you find that sort of power to be able to help lift others to a place where they can feel comfortable as well. And for myself, at least, it's only after a lot of reflection and a lot of experience that I was able to truly be dedicated to creating an association where, you know, anyone walking in would feel like they belonged. But more specifically to myself, like a small brown girl <laughs> who... <laughs> who didn't necessarily see herself represented at the Model UN stage, saw herself there, finally. Nice, I like that. Those are some good words to end off with. If anyone that's listening to this wants to reach out to you, what's the best way of doing so? <laughs> you can follow me on Instagram <laughs> at abarna.salvaraja. I'm pretty sure the spelling will be up with the, with the 
uh, podcast. But yeah, if anyone has questions, just shoot me a message. I'm almost always on social media. <laughs> Exposed. <laughs> All right, great. Um, Barna, Abby, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Um, I hope you have a great night. Thank you so much for having me, Raddy.